following audio is from Connection Church, located in Brownstown, Michigan, a place where you can connect, worship, and serve. For more information about Connection, go to cconline.church. All right, so the scripture that we're going to meditate on, that we're going to focus on, comes from Job chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, if you have it on your phone, feel free to to bring that out and follow along as we go. We're in Job chapter 1, starting at verse 13. It says this, Now there was a day when, when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the dachshunds feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with, with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is the word of the Lord. So there is a uh, kind of a belief or an idea out there in our kind of modern world that, that all the religions are really kind of like climbing mountains, kind of like mountain climbing, where we all start in these different spots. Where these different religions, you're starting in this different spot, you're over here, another religion, another ideology, another way of thinking is over here. But really, it's mountain climbing, and really, as you climb a mountain, you get closer and closer to the peak. Because really, at the end of the day, all the religions, they're, they're going to, like a mountain climber, all end up in the same spot. But I, I would say to you that, that it's much more like this, that, that it's much more like if you flip that mountain upside down. Because really, when you think about it, we're all starting in the same spot as humanity. We're all in the, the same lived experiences as human beings in this world, trying to figure out our way. And we have these different paths that we can go down, these different ways of living in this world. And as we go down them, as we live with these religions or these ideologies, the reality is that they're going to end us up in different places. We're going to go on different paths and different trajectories And we could be in completely different places. And so our job is to kind of test and evaluate, okay, is this the the right path? Is this the the best way to navigate this world? Is this religion or way of living or ideology? Is this the way that's going to lead me forward? And that's what this series that we're in is all about. We're continuing a message series, a message conversation uh, called Why Christian? And really the big idea is this, that we're investigating the, the different claims, the different reasons that we, we can live in this world as Christians and why Christianity maybe rises to the top 
and is very reasonable and, and offers the best way to live in this world. That's the big idea that we're going through in this series. And last week, if you were here with us, we, we started off by focusing on the uniqueness of Christianity. Uh, that is the grace that we receive through Jesus. It's not through any work of our own. It's simply through faith in him and, and the grace that we receive from God. And that sets Christianity apart. And today, what we're looking at is the second reason for Christianity in our modern world. And, and the second reason I would put it is this way, that Christianity offers a, a meaning for life and a hope for the future that can endure suffering. I'll say that again. Christianity offers a, a meaning for life and a, and a hope for the future that can endure suffering. Now, I think I'm not surprising anyone by saying, listen, like, suffering is going to happen in our lives. It's not a question of, of if it's going to happen. It's a question of, of when and, and what exactly it's going to look like. I think for many of us, if we think about our past and if we think about maybe what we're going through at this present moment, we're going through some perhaps hard circumstances, some challenging times. The reality of suffering is that it will happen to one degree or another in our life. That much we know is true. And any religion, any way of thinking, any way of living in this world has to somehow answer that question of like, okay, how do you stand up underneath that? How do you handle that? How do you move forward in the face of suffering? Any ideology, any religion, any way of living in this world had better address that question. Otherwise, it's not much use because the reality is that we face that suffering often. But I want to say this at the outset, when we talk about suffering, here's what I'm not going to talk about today we're not going to talk about the why of suffering. And I think there's two common things that float to the top of our mind that I really just want to address real quickly. Some of the reasons that we think why suffering happens to us or in our life. One of the common things that people think is that, that God is punishing me. And another thing that people think is that I, I'm doing something wrong, I'm being unfaithful, and so therefore suffering is happening in my life. And I just want to address those real quickly because um, they're wrong. Uh, the first, that, that oftentimes we think that, that why is suffering happening in my life is because God is punishing me. And the reality is, if you read the scriptures, that is just wrong. God says that that is not how he works. This is how he works, that, that he dealt with sin and punishment and wrath. He dealt with that on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And so God is not sitting up, up, up in heaven looking at you saying, all right, you did this. You, you disobeyed me, therefore I'm punishing you here in the present reality. God doesn't work like that. But, but maybe you're thinking to yourself, maybe I'm facing suffering or hardships because I did something wrong or I was unfaithful, and these are the things of it. And the reality is, like, yeah, that we can't account necessarily for bad decisions. Like, you could have just done something stupid, and you could have brought it on yourself, maybe. But maybe not. Maybe you're doing the right thing. Maybe you're being faithful in your, your situation. Maybe you are doing the, the God-honoring, the thing that blesses other people, the thing that you should be doing, and yet there's still pushback, there's still hardship, there's still suffering that happens because you do the right thing. Sometimes that happens. So it's not necessarily that you're doing something wrong. So I just want to kind of address those real quick because those are common questions we have. Now, 
The question of why suffering happens in our life, in the world around us, the reality is we're not going to come to a satisfactory answer. And if we try and answer that question of why this thing happens in my life, you're going to be searching for it day after day after day. And so we're not going to focus on the why, but rather we're going to focus on this question. How do we, how do we face suffering? How do we go through suffering in a way that we can stand up underneath it and it doesn't overwhelm us? That's the question. And if you look at Job, if you look at Job, how did, how did he face that? We read it in the scriptures that, that there was a lot of stuff that happened in Job's life, like one after the other after the other. He, he lost his, his house workers that he had, who would have been like his employees of that day. He lost his oxen and his sheep. These are the things that, that would have provided for the, the finances, that would have provided for, put food on the table for him. That was his livelihood. He lost all of that. Then the, the camels, which were their mode of transportation, he lost that. So he's losing his, his income, he's losing his workers, he's losing his way to get around in that society. And then lastly, he loses his family members, his kids. One after the other, after the other, after the other. And what's incredible is Job's response. He says this, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job, in the face of this incredible suffering and pain and hardship, is somehow able to endure it, able to have it fall on him and not just give up. But he's able to go through it. Here's the question, how? How was he able to do that? How was he able to, in the face of this incredible pain, this incredible hardship, endure it and go through it? The reality is that he was able to face it and to endure it and to make it through it, not because he was awesome or he was strong, but that he placed his meaning and his hope not in the earthly things. He placed it in God. He placed it in something otherworldly, in something higher, in something heavenly, something that could not be taken away. And that made all the difference. That made all the difference. So back in the 11th century, there was a, a growing and bustling uh, sea town in Italy. And they were growing, and they had a lot of people moving there, and the, just growth in population. And, and the thing you did back then was, you build a big cathedral, and you build these big immaculate buildings. And so they're like, well, this is becoming a big deal of this city, so we need to build some big buildings and build this big tower. And so they, they, they chartered a mission of like, hey, we're going to build this big bell tower. And they hired this guy, uh, Dio Tesalvi, which, like, how cool of a name is that? I know we're all jealous. So Dio Tesalvi, he came and he, he, was, he was commissioned. He said, all right, build this bell tower. So he came and he laid this, this big marble foundation in the ground by the seaport city. But unfortunately, because they were right by the sea, uh, he wasn't able to go that deep in the ground. He was only able to go about 10 feet into the ground of building this foundation. And so then they start building this bell tower, and it got a couple stories up. And then here's the craziest thing. Here's what they noticed. It started to lean. It started to tilt. Because the foundation wasn't that, 
that deep into it. And so what they did is they tried to compensate, and, and they were like, okay, well, this side of it is, is kind of drooping and kind of leaning, so let's build the, the pillars on this side a little bit longer so it evens it out. And so they kept doing that. Here's the thing. It didn't fix the problem. I mean, I don't think it takes an engineer to realize, okay, that's not going to actually fix your problem there. And what they did for thousands of, for hundreds of years, sorry, for hundreds of years is they've just been doing patch-up projects to try and make it even, to try and make it level, but they never actually totally fix it. Now, I think many of us have probably figured out what I'm talking about right now. Of course, I'm talking about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story, one, to, to let you know, like, listen, anytime you take a trip out to Italy, be careful. They had some engineers and some very smart people look at it, and they say they're confident it should stay upright for another 200 years. Should. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see about that. But again, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because the, the most important thing in in building a building, building a house, building a tower, and whatever it is, the most important thing you need to do is make sure the foundation is set. Make sure the foundation is in a good place because that makes all the difference. And likewise, it's not just for buildings, it's also for our life. The foundation that you build your life on makes all the difference. The foundation that you build your life on makes all the difference. And fundamentally, there's really only two foundations to build your life on. You can build your life on, on the things of this earth, the, the earthly tangible things like our job, like our relationships, our finances, our status. You can build it on the things that we see and touch. Or we can build it on something that's higher than, than the earthly things, something heavenly, so to speak. That's really, the, at the end of the day, the two foundations that you and I can build our life on. And so take, for instance, a, a kind of a secular humanist, someone who says, hey, listen, I, I don't believe in a God. There's no kind of spiritual realm. All we know is what, all there is is what we see, what we can test, what we can touch in this earthly world. So they're building their foundation on the things of this earth. Only what we see and experience is what's real and is what's there. Therefore, that's the most important thing. The most important things are the things that are right in front of us that we can touch, that we can do, and that we can see. Therefore, the meaning in our life, the, the purpose that we have of our life is, is something that deals with the here and now, is something that I also create. I create my meaning in this world then if this is kind of the most important earthly reality. And so what that looks like is, hey, I'm going to be the best spouse I can be. That is my meaning in this world. That is my purpose, is I want to be the best spouse I can be because that's what's important. I, I'm going to be the best at my job, whatever that looks like for you. I'm going to, I'm going to rise, and I'm going to get the, 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 the raise, and I'm going to get the achievement in my job. I'm going to be the kindest person. I'm going to be known by other people. I'm going to have this status as like, hey, that, was, that, that guy, that girl was really thoughtful, was really caring. That's my meaning that's my purpose. And so we create that. We, we decide what we want it to be. Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who was an evolutionary biologist at Harvard, not, not, not an insignificant school, uh, he was asked about the meaning of life. He was asked, like, hey, could you do a little piece on what the meaning of life is? And here's what he said. He said this a few years ago. He said, we are here 
because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fish fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. And because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available, so thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. And because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, and because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves, from our own wisdom and ethical sense. So, What am I saying? What am I talking about? He's essentially saying this. Listen, this is all there is. We create our own meaning in this world. You make your own meaning. You get to decide, this is what my purpose is in this life, and it all deals with the here and the now. And because of that, because our meaning is in the the jobs we have, the relationships we have, the status we achieve, our hope then, our trust, our reliance is fundamentally on ourselves and the other people around us to provide what we need. So every track, I know we're kind of up here, but are you tracking with me? Now compare that. That's a kind of earthly view. Compare that with with a view that puts the heavenly, that puts the higher things as most important. For someone who, who perhaps has a Christian worldview, who, who is a Christian, they would say this, the most important things are the higher things, are the heavenly things. It, it would be God. That's the most important thing. It doesn't say that the things don't matter here, but it realizes that, that there's something more important than the job we have, than the relationships we make, the status we earn, the money we make. There's something more important than that. There's something higher than that. And therefore, meaning... And purpose is not something that I create. It's something that is given to me by by the creator, by the God of the universe. The meaning and purpose and hope we have is not in ourselves or not in the people around us. It's in something higher. It's in something heavenly. It's in God who has given it to us for that reason. I hope you're tracking with this. These two ways, these two foundations to build upon your life, they are fundamentally different. They get you in different places. You navigate the world differently depending on what your foundation is. Jesus, uh, he he told a kind of a a story or kind of an illustration once and he said, listen, there's, there's really only two things that you can do. You can build your house on the sand or you can build your house on the rock. And really what he's talking about is, is not just a literal house, but he's talking about your life. He's talking about where you build your life upon. He said, listen, you, you can build it on the sand that will shift and, and will be unstable and will be shaky. And when the storms and the winds come, it'll, it'll blow it over. Or, or you can build it on the rock, which is sturdy, which is firm, which is a solid foundation to build upon, and it will not fail you. What I would say to you is this, that Building your, your life, your, your worldview, your way of interacting in this world upon the earthly things, no matter how good they are, is like building your house on the sand. It's like building your house on the sand. Because what happens 
What happens when the thing that you placed your meaning and your hope in, what happens when that is taken away? What happens when, when the job that you said, listen, this is what defines me, this is my purpose in life, to be the best at this, to earn status in this, what happens when you get laid off? What happens when they get someone younger and, and cheaper than you? You've lost your meaning, you've lost your purpose, you've lost your identity by that taking away from you. What happens when you place your meaning and your hope in another person, even one you, you love dearly? What happens when that person uh, maybe uh, decides that they don't want to be in your life anymore? What happens when that person passes away? Your meaning and your hope shift and move and you lose it. And you no longer have that foundation in your life. See, when you build your life as the most important things are the things of this world, the things of this earth, it's too risky. It's too vulnerable. You leave yourself open to any circumstance that comes in and can cut it out from under you. And you're left with nothing. We're at the whims of any change in our circumstances. There was a movie back in the 1980s uh, called Chariots of Fire. Anybody see it? A few people? Yeah, awesome. We didn't have the music, you know, I didn't want to do the whole running thing. But, but Chariots of Fire is a movie that was about the 1924 Olympics. And really it's centered around two different runners and their, their journeys of, of training and preparing for it and their purposes in running those Olympics. And one of them, his name was Harold Abrahams. And, and Harold, uh, he, he was very clear about what his purpose was. He found his meaning, he found his purpose in achieving uh, the, the gold of that Olympics, of, of being the best runner. That was his purpose in life. And he said this in the movie. He said, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? You, you can see in his, his voice, you can see in his, his words that, that, listen, this is who he is. This is his meaning. This is his, like, the reason that he exists is to do this thing. And he's sitting there and he's like, I don't know if I could do it. What if I fail? What's going to happen to me? That way of living is too vulnerable. It's too risky. You know, I think about kind of athletes in general. You know, you see this in professional athletes, but it doesn't have to be professional athletes. It could be if you were a big sports person growing up. The reality is if you find your meaning, if you find your purpose, if you find your hope in doing this activity and doing this thing as being known as like the most talented quarterback or, or gymnast, whatever it is, if that's your purpose in life, that could just get cut out from under you either by injury or by like turning 35. And you're like, I can't do this thing anymore. And when you lose that, when that was your reason for living, when that was your hope, when that was your meaning, you're left with nothing. Who am I then? You're left at the changes, changes of, of circumstances. If, if wealth, if pursuing wealth and status and having your bank account be, be you know, big and stable, if that is your purpose, if that is your meaning, you were left at the whims of every change of the market. As it, the market goes up, so does your, your, your self-worth, but if it goes down, you're left at the whims of that. 
It wasn't too long ago that we had one of the biggest market crashes in our history. And when that happened, you saw a lot of people, sadly, unfortunately, who had their meaning, who had their identity, who had their hope tied up in those, those stocks in their bank accounts. They took their life. Because so went my money, so went my bank account, there I went. I no longer knew who I was. Because my hope, my, my reason for living was tied up in that. Now, think about when you build your life on the heavenly things. When you place your meaning and your hope in, in God who is, who is higher than that. Here's the thing. Your meaning and your hope cannot be taken away. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what circumstances happen, your meaning and your hope can never be taken away from you because they didn't depend on you. They didn't depend on how much money you had. They didn't depend on the relationship you had. They didn't depend on your status. No, they depended on, on God who is higher than, than all of this and who gave it to you. And so it can never be taken away. And that means that, that you and I, we can pursue our meaning and we can hold on to our hope in any circumstance, even suffering. Even suffering. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul, who was a, a pastor and, and a church planter. He started tons and tons of churches. He wrote half of the New Testament. If you look at Paul's life, uh, he wrote one letter to a church in, in the Greek city of Philippi. And in it, he wrote it. He started off by saying, like, listen, guys, everything that's happened to me, I rejoice in, and I, I know that it's serving the advancement of God's kingdom and God's gospel. Well, what happened to him? Well, he was thrown in prison for telling people about Jesus and starting new churches. And there he is sitting, listen, I rejoice in this. I rejoice even in the midst of my circumstances because he knew that his meaning and his purpose wasn't tied to his circumstance. He was going around telling people about Jesus and so the, the authorities were like, well, we gotta stop him. We gotta like squelch him so we're gonna put him in prison so that means he's not going to be able to tell people about Jesus. He's going to just get super depressed. When actually, he was like, well, prison ministry. Here we go. And he started talking to the guards. He started talking to the other people in, in prison. That's what he did. So it didn't matter his circumstances. His meaning and his hope was still there. Viktor Frankl, who uh, he was a psychiatrist uh, back in the 1930s, in 40s and 50s, he, uh, he was put into a, uh, a concentration camp uh, during World War II. And uh, he, he survived it. And he actually wrote a book about his experience and the conversations that he had with people there. And perhaps you've read it or at least heard of it. It's called A Man's Search for Meaning. I know sometimes they, they tell you to read that in school, but Viktor Frankl wrote that book. And in it, he talked about the, the conversations he had and the things he witnessed in the concentration camp. And he said this. He said that, that really there's three different types of people that he saw in the concentration camp. He saw there were some people who, who in the midst of the, the torture and the suffering, they became like the torturers. They, they responded by, by becoming... Uh, violent by becoming aggressive because that's how they responded to that he said there was a second group of people that that they became just shells of themselves they just gave up 
because they were overwhelmed with the pain and the suffering, and they lost just all hope. But then he said there was a third group of people. There was a third group of people who who they didn't become like animals. They didn't lose the, the moral sense that they had. They also didn't give up. They didn't become shells of themselves, but they endured. He said they were able to, to push through it, and nothing that happened to them, like, squelched them. They were able to persevere. They knew the circumstances that they were in. They, they knew that it was not good. They didn't ignore it, but they knew how to endure it and to not be overwhelmed it. And, and Viktor Frankl was, was surprised by this, and he wondered, he's like, how did they do that? How did they do this? When you look at all these other people that were losing their morals or losing their sanity, how were these people able to endure it? And he said this, after talking to them and observing them, the reality is this, that they had their hope, they had their meaning, not in earthly stuff, but they talked about how their hope and their meaning came from something higher, something that concentration camps could not touch. The death camps literally took everything away from these people. And yet, it couldn't take away the hope and the foundation that they had in God. Couldn't take that away. Now, I say all of this, and you could be saying, okay, Andy, how, how do you know that there is something higher? How do you know there is something more than just the things of this world? Because this is what we can see. How do we know there actually is something that we can put our hope in? It's not just wishful thinking. I I would say this, that that I know it to be true, that I know there is something higher because it came down into our world and made itself known. John 1.14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is the only Son from the Father. And what this verse is saying is this, that, that Jesus Christ, who, who is the Son of God from, from all eternity, from the highest heavenly realms, he came down and he entered into our earthly existence. He came in where people could see him, could talk to him, could touch him. The heavenly came into earth. And Jesus came, as it said, to show the glory of God, to reveal who God was to all of us. That was his mission. That was his purpose. And he came and he showed us the meaning that we have given to us by our creator, given to us by our God. It's not something that we create. It's not something we manufacture or we find in anything of this world. But we know it to be true because God came into our world. And what I want to say this is that that for us as Christians, our meaning is not a set of principles. The meaning that God has given to us is not some list of rules that we need to follow, but rather our meaning is a person. It's a relationship with the God of the universe who came to us in his son, Jesus Christ. But he didn't just come to show us who God was. He came to live like us. He came to experience the things that we experience. He experienced everything that you and I go through in our day-to-day life. Jesus experienced it all. And Jesus even entered in to our suffering. The suffering that we go through, Jesus knows it too. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you trusted? So has he. 
Have you ever been let down by someone that you were putting your trust and your faith in? So is he. Have you ever lost someone that you loved? So is he. Have you ever been so stressed out you don't know which way is up? So is he. Have you ever been abused, insulted, and neglected? So has he. Now why would he do that? Why would he enter into our suffering, experience the things that we experience? He did that to do this, to show you that no matter what happens, no matter what your circumstances are, he's with you. He's been there. And he continues to be with you in your everyday life, no matter the circumstances. And he has the power to overcome it because he went through it and he came out and rose again. That's why he did it. Uh, Romans 8, 28, which is a very common verse, was a very popular verse. It puts it this way. We know that, those who love, that for those who love God, all, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's a beautiful verse, but I just want to say a few words. Sometimes we misapply this verse. Sometimes we say this verse to someone who is in pain, who is suffering, and, and sometimes it can be heard as minimizing the pain, as minimizing the suffering. And that's not what this verse is about. This verse is, is about this, about being honest and being open that we can call suffering what it is, that we don't have to ignore it, that we don't have to turn away from it, that we can call it what it is, evil and crappy. <laughs> like it, that we can call it what it is. And it invites us to mourn with those who mourn, but to also mourn with hope. It invites us to mourn with hope. And here's what I mean by that. When we think about, and we talk about a lot, Jesus Christ going to the cross, giving his life for us. We call it good news. We call it Good Friday when we, when we celebrate what Jesus did. But I want you to think about this. On that day, for his disciples, for the people who were following him, when they saw him crucified on that cross, it was anything but good. It was suffering. It was unjust. They knew that th this is not the way it should be. And so it was not a good day when that happened. And yet, yet, we know that that's not the end of the story. Because on the third day, on that Sunday following, Jesus rose again from the dead. And because he rose again, he was able to bring, bring beauty out of the ashes of the cross. He was able to redeem the suffering, redeem the, the pain, the unjust that was happening to him on that cross. Because he rose again, he was able to bring beauty out of that suffering. That's what he was able to do. And that's how our God works. Our God is a God who, who comes to us and is with us in our sufferings and promises us this, that no matter what happens to us in our life, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how deep the pain, God promises this, that I will work through it. I will redeem it. I will bring beauty out of it in ways that we could never imagine, in ways that we would never dream of. And, but it's only in hindsight that we realize that's happening. As we go through the suffering, we call it what it is, evil and hard 
But God promises us that he will work through it and he will redeem it. And here, so practically, here's what that means for you. As you go through the hard things in life, don't minimize it. Don't just try and like shrug it off and be like, ah, it's no big deal. It's like, no, you can sit and you can be honest and you can say, this is hard, this is painful. And when you see someone else going through suffering and hardships, don't simply say, well, it's, it's, everything's going to be okay. Sit with them, mourn with them, acknowledge that it's hard. But we also mourn with hope because we know that our God is a God who redeems and he will bring beauty out of it. God is weaving this story in our lives and throughout all of history to bring his glory and to bring his beauty into this world. We don't know how it's going to exactly happen, but we know that's where it's headed. And that hope, that meaning, can never be taken away from you, no matter what happens. That is with you because God has given it to you. Jesus once said that you can, you can build your life on the sand or you can build your life on the rock. And friends, today, that's the question for, for you and for me. Is which one are we going to build our life on? On the sand, which, which is unstable, unshaky, and uncertain? Or on the rock, which will always be with us, care for us, and will endure all the hardships? Amen. Join me in word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that, uh, that even though we can't make sense of everything that happens in our life, that, uh, that you promise to be with us, that you promise to work through our circumstances, uh, even when they seem dark, even though, when they seem hard. Lord, we, we ask that you would be with us and that you would reveal to us the, that you are still present for us, that we can lean upon Jesus Christ, that we can turn to him, and we can know that, that because of his his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that, that our meaning and that our hope is secure. And as we lean on him, that you will give us that foundation to be able to make it through and endure anything that happens to us. And may we share that hope and that love with others. We ask this in the holy and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Connection Church. We pray it was a blessing to you, and we hope to see you soon. For worship times and more information about Connection, go to cconline.church.